Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. It's September 9th. Uh, Welcome back to Tuesday's uh, live program here on Voice America. You're listening to Good Morning New York, and I'm your host, Vince Rocco. Our show today is dedicated to an American tragedy that took place 13 years ago, September 11, 2001. On that particular day, the world seemed to be at peace. The temperature, I remember, and the weather conditions in New York City were spectacular. I remember that day as being one of the best summer days of that year. I was just back from a summer in East Hampton, and what I didn't realize, as I was sitting at my desk drinking my morning coffee on the 55th floor of my office building on Exchange Place, that my life and that of many others would be changed forever in just a few minutes. I saw a plane racing at a very high rate of speed crash into Tower 1, and the rest became history. I shall never forget the visual out my window. I had a direct view of both planes hitting. The rest of my story a little later. Here with me today is Edie Lutnick, the co-founder and executive director of the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund. Edie's brother, Howard Lutnick, was and is the CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald, the brokerage firm that lost 658 employees on that day. So tragic. Their offices were on the top of the world, on the 105th floor of One World Trade Center, just above where the first plane hit. Howard survived because he happened to be taking his son to his first day of kindergarten. Not so lucky was their brother Gary, who was in the office at the time. We will hear Edie's story and how only three days after this tragedy, she and Howard created the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund to give back to the families and other victims of 9-11. Edie turned her law practice over to her partners in the wake of 9-11 in order to devote her energies full-time to the 9-11 community. Edie, good morning, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Good morning, Vince. Thank you so much for having me. So when you look back to that day, where were you and what were you doing? I was home. Um, my office is actually was on the 101st floor of One World Trade Center. That's where my law offices were. Right. And um, I had a meeting scheduled for early that morning, and my lead plaintiff called and canceled because he was sick. So he asked if he could reschedule it the next day, and so I was still home. And I received a phone call, obviously, very similar to ones that others received um, from my brother Gary that he was in the towers and uh, that he wasn't going to make it. And so, you know, my entire world changed that morning, just like so many others. I was going to ask you when you first realized that your brother was there, so he actually placed a phone call to tell you that he was in the tower and that he wasn't going to make it. There are so many stories like that, personal friends of mine, the same thing. It's really... It's really kind of tragic. What were your immediate feelings, you know, um, when you realized that he was stuck there and he wasn't going to be able to get out, and the 658 employees who happened to have been there that day? I mean, I can't even imagine the mon- monumental feeling of grief. Uh, how, what, I mean, what could possibly be going through your mind at that moment? Well, it, you know, it, you have to understand something. Um, our parents passed away when we were young, so I raised Gary. So Gary was right. my brother, but he was also like mm-hmm. my child. And so, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I screamed no, you know, no, no, over and over right. again. I mean, he, he, you know, and the fact that we then later learned, you know, exactly what was going on here, 
and that it was not only Gary, but it was 657 of his friends and colleagues, and Howard had raced down to the site to see what he could do to pull people out of the building, so he actually almost died on the outside of the building. Um, you know, it, it just, you know, I was, I was bereft in a way that, you know, I never even imagined was humanly possible. But, you know, we turned around and, and you know, thankfully the survivors at Cantor Fitzgerald, you know, we, we had 906 employees after, you know, before um, the plane struck and, and there were 302 survivors. We lost 658 people and Howard and those survivors you know, Howard asked them, what do you want to do in the wake of all of this? Do you want to fold the company or do you want to work harder than you've ever worked in your life to take care of these families and rebuild? And they said, you know, we want to work. And, and he turned to me and said, I, I want to start a charity and I need you to run it. And I told him he was crazy because I was grieving Gary. And then I started thinking of all the people who were more qualified to do this than me and they were all gone. And I said, Okay. Uh, if I could help my brother and I could help the families and if they were feeling the amount of pain I was feeling, then we had to do something. And so the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund was born to support Cantor Fitzgerald in trying to take care of these families in any way that we could. And the marriage between the two was, you know, corporate and social responsibility around one mission, which was to take care of these families. And we rebuilt the company, the the survivors rebuilt the company, and, and the charity figured out how to get funds to them and how to emotionally help them heal. All right, so it was really kind of a twofold process. I mean, you decided collectively that you wanted to continue the, the company uh, and to bring the company back with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But by the same token, you were also thinking about giving back to the victims' families by creating this, this fund or this charity. So, you know, how, you know, how did you actually start the, the relief fund? I mean, three days after when you guys decided to do this, it's, it's kind of, you're still grieving, uh, of course. But how did you actually get this fund off the ground and get it to a point where, people paid attention because this was something serious here. Well, Howard went on national television, and he made people understand that this was, you know, a human tragedy, not just a corporate tragedy, and that people actually died here and that they were in pain and their families needed help. And people started writing in and saying, I want to help these people. And so we, we started with nothing. We started with, you know, I had no... Um, charity experience beyond going to charity events and, you know, buying things and writing checks to, you know, people I thought were doing good works in the world, but I, I didn't have experience running a charity, and it was basically myself and my boyfriend and my friends and, and you know, Gary's friends and Howard and Allison's friends, and everybody came in, and we, we started, and we started by opening mail and, and saying, okay, you know, people want to help. We called them and said, you want to volunteer? Come on. And we cobbled together an organization that was just based on being very reactive. You know, okay, people are sending in money, then we need to open a bank account. We need to figure out who's dead. We need to figure out who their next of kin is. We need to figure out where they are. Um, and we need to figure out what they need. And they would call and they would cry and they would need support. And they, you know, no matter what it was that they needed, we would say, okay, we're going to chase that down. And what we realized very quickly was that, 
You know, it's your responsibility to take care of your family. It's your responsibility to do that financially before a tragedy, and it's your responsibility after a tragedy. And so we said, you know what, we're not going to make that decision for your family. You're in the best position to decide where the money needs to go for your particular set of circumstances. And so we gave direct financial assistance. And so while... Howard and, and the survivors were really focused on trying to rebuild the company so that there was money to give. We were focused on figuring out who they were, where they were, how to give it, and, and what we could do to help them any way we possibly could. Now, it's and true. We, he, he, Howard put a million dollars of his own personal money into the fund, obviously, to, to kickstart it, um, which I which think is huge. Which was huge, because the, huge. the firm was in rubble. You know, everything was in rubble. You know, who who knew? That could have been, you know, every penny he had in the world. Right. That was huge, you know. But, um, you know, once, like I said, once we started figuring this all out and, and the, you know, the public was extraordinarily supportive and and people wanted to help and, and the, the way that they rebuilt the company was extraordinary. I mean, they were up and running in, you know, a couple of days. So, you know, they just turned around between the people who survived in London and, and the people in New York going and working out of New Jersey and the people from L.A. I mean, what they, what they accomplished was Herculean. And, you know, we, we started and people were, you know, skeptical. They're like, how, how are you going to take care of these families? But fast forward 10 years and we'd given the families over $180 million dollars. Oh my! I was going to ask you that. I saw that number, one hundred eighty million dollars, and that's that's um, absolutely unbelievable and um, it, it, just unbelievable. But how? But how quickly were you able to get these funds distributed? Because as you said earlier, you, you needed to find out first who was not here anymore, who was dead, who was you know wherever. You know, it, again, that's a Herculean exercise to pull together. How quickly were we able to get even five dollars to somebody? Was it almost immediate, our, or did it take time? First. Our first round of checks went out October the 4th. Wow. Okay. And you have to understand, our first memorial service for our families was October the 1st. Yes. So in the middle of all of this, we're, you know, we're all grieving, and we're all going to funerals, and we're going to, you know, 658 people is, is about 20 funerals a day for 35 mm-hmm. days. Yeah. That's so we're, you know, in the midst of all of this, we're just, you know, everybody's just working, you know, as hard and as furiously as they can. And But, you know, three weeks, within three weeks, we've had money out the door. Yeah. And our first round of checks went to people who, you know, had lost, uh, you know, had children under the age of one or were expecting a child. I was going to ask you where the first distribution was. So children under the age of one or for... Families, uh, you know, families. wives, wives or you know, husbands with children under the age of one and, uh, and expecting. Now, how did payroll continue for those who, who survived the crash and moved to other locations, as you indicated earlier? How did payroll continue there? Did it come out of this fund as well? Because, obviously, with the business no. blown up. How did that no, happen? No, 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 no. The, the firm, Canner Fitzgerald, continued to meet payroll for its surviving employees. Okay. The Canner Fitzgerald Relief Fund it is a charity. Right. So we were, we were formed for the purposes of, of helping the families move forward in yet another way. But Howard pledged 25% of the profits of Cantor Fitzgerald for five years and 10 years of health care to the family. Oh, and uh, a, pledge that, a pledge that, you know, 
he and the survivors met, you know, above and beyond anybody's expectations. But, you know, one of the things that we did that I'm extraordinarily proud of is that when the families started to become stable, we said, okay, you know what, let's focus on legacy. How can we memorialize those that we lost in a positive way, and how can we make a day that's so hard for the survivors uplifting um, and, you know, while we certainly have a memorial service for our loved ones every year, as we will this year as well, um, what can we do to make the world a better place in, in memory of those that we lost? And so we started Charity Day. And what Charity Day is, is on September 11th this year, it's, you know, a Thursday, so on September 11th or the first work day thereafter, uh, everyone does not take the day off. Everybody works. And... 100% of the revenues, not the profits, the revenues at both Cantor Fitzgerald and its public company, BGC Partners, go to charities of import to the employees and the clients, and they bring in celebrity ambassadors to represent them who get on the phones and make it an uplifting and positive day for everybody who's giving up their salaries and their commissions that day. Edie, we're going to have to take a break. We're going to take a break for a second, but we'll be right back. Don't go away. We are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America channel. Stay, Stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll free in North America at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. We're back, everybody, and I'm here today talking to Edie Lutnick, the co-founder and executive director of the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund. Edie, so the Relief Fund has expanded its scope from victims of terrorism, uh, such as the 9-11 event, to include victims of natural disasters, the Hurricane Sandy, for example, and emergencies. Um, how did this come about? I mean, we started with the charity to to help the victims of the Cantor Fitzgerald world and 9-11 world. Now we're expanding to natural disasters, which I think is amazing. How did that come about, and how successful has that become for the, uh, the relief fund? Well, as, as I was saying before, when we started Charity Day, which is where 100% of the revenues from Canner and BGC partners go to charities right. of import, we assisted 200, over 200 charities that do um, direct services, so everything from medical education, things that are really, really important. And so 
um, when Sandy hit, it hit our community again, as you know. And so um, we still had the funds from Charity Day. That year, I believe Charity Day had raised over $12 million because the program itself has given away over $100 million. And we, um, we still had that money, and we said, okay, well, how can we take the lessons that we learned from 9-11, how can we apply them in a way that will be positive and, and make an impact for our community with Sandy? And so the first thing we did was we went to the employees at Cantor Fitzgerald and BGC and Newmark Grub Knight Frank, and we said, okay, anyone who was hard hit by Sandy, the relief fund will give $1,000 in emergency aid. And then we said, well, we're not going to forget our 9-11 community. So anyone, unfortunately, some of them were hard hit by Sandy as well. And we went directly to them and said, okay, we're going to give you $1,000 in emergency aid. And then we looked at the communities that were hard hit where our employees live and have families. And we said, okay, we know and we learned from 9-11 that when you have children, it's a wonderful thing. But when you have young children in the face of a trauma or tragedy, it's also extraordinarily difficult. And so we decided we were going to adopt elementary schools in hard-hit areas of Sandy where uh, families had children enrolled. And for every family that had a child enrolled in one of the elementary schools that we selected, they all received $1,000 apiece in, in prepaid cards as well so that they would have money to spend on their families any way that they wanted to. And then when we finished doing that for Sandy, when Oklahoma, when the tornadoes in Oklahoma hit and more, we said, okay, you know what? Oklahoma was very good to the 9-11 community. We learned a lot from them. Their, their um, recovery workers were some of the first ones on the ground in New York. We need to help them too. And so we turned around and we did the exact same thing in more Oklahoma. It's amazing. You wrote a book, An Unbroken Bond, three years ago with all the proceeds being donated to the fund, of course, <clears throat> and its charities. Why did you decide to write this book 10 years after 9-11? What was your goal? You know, I, I felt that we had a, a, a look and a perspective and, and how things happened um, that would be beneficial going forward. An Unbroken Bond is not a 300-page eulogy to my brother Gary. It's a, a well-sourced book with, you know, over 100 footnotes in it. And it's more about how we behaved. How did we behave as individuals? How did we behave as corporations? How did we behave as societies, as, as governments, as politicians, as friends, as colleagues? And, and how can we behave better in the face of, of trauma and tragedy going forward? The issues that the 9-11 families faced, are not ones that most people expected. And 100% of the people who read An Unbroken Bond come back to me and they say, you know what, I had no idea. I had no idea. Right. And so, you know, it's, I wrote it so that it would be a way to tell the story of the 9-11 families and in a way that, because I, I had a very different perspective as both a family leader and as, as a victim's family and as someone who had offices in the buildings, and, 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 and. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you stretch across all, especially being a, a victim's family. Uh, talk a little bit, if you can, about where is Canna Fitzgerald today? I mean, 13 years later, obviously still very successful. What is, what is the tone? What is the mood? What is the, the feeling? How successful has it become? So, All these years later. I, I wanna, uh, so I'll, I'll tell you some of the things of which I'm very proud. Okay, so there were 302 survivors after 9-11. There's over 3,000 employees in New York today. 
um, and over 8,000 worldwide, where the company went down to its core competencies and was running maybe two businesses in the wake of 9-11, you know, in, in the aftermath, um, there are now dozens and dozens. One of the things that, that I love the most is that there are now 41 children of the victims of 9-11 that work for Kenner Fitzgerald. Mm. Nice, nice. And, you know, and, and so to see their faces and know that this is where they want to be, because I think we all can agree that you can't tell a 21-year-old anything. No, you can't. <laughs> so, you know, they're making these decisions on their own. So, but it's uh, heartwarming to think that a 21-year-old would make a decision like that because it's obviously very meaningful to those, that person. It's, it's extraordinary. Exactly. And to, and to us, that these, sure. these children, whether they work for Cantor Fitzgerald or they don't, have the ability to point to this investment banking firm and say, this is where my mother worked, this is where my father worked, and it still survives and it still thrives. And so we're, we're extraordinarily proud of that. Yeah, you know, you you must be very happy, obviously, with all these accomplishments, both from a personal perspective and from you know the cannabis general perspective, and 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 the fund and how it's it's grown and all that you've given back to the victims' families. Anything in particular that you're most proud of out of all of these things that you've accomplished over the last thirteen years? I, you know, I look, I'm I'm proud to see the fund grow. I, I'm. I'm proud to see that, that people are starting to look at the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund as an alternative to um, some of the or- other organizations that are out there, both in times of disasters and in, in um, you know, times of peace and calm. I'm, I'm extraordinarily proud to see the charities that have come out of our families. The 9-11 families have started, you know, hundreds of charities to take care of not just the 9-11 community, but the problems of the world and of the country. And I, you know, so that's extraordinarily gratifying to me. And, you know, every time somebody gets up and they have a better day because of the support that was provided to them, that's gratifying. And as we move forward and we grow into other areas, that's, that also makes me very, very proud. You know, in addition to sitting on the board at the Cannon Fitzgerald Relief Fund, which obviously you, you co-manage, you're also on the board of My Good Deed and a Caring Hand, the Billy Esposito Foundation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what those organizations are? I can. Um, My Good Deed is the 9-11 Day of Service and Remembrance, which is to take 9-11 and uh, look at it as a day where you can do a positive act um, in the world, whether it's through volunteering, charitable donations, uh, being kind, but to remember a person from 9-11 and in their name do an act of goodness in the world so that we take something, a day that's been known for uh, terrorism and, and, and trauma and turn it into something positive. Um, so that's something that I happily stand behind. And the Billy Esposito Foundation um, I, I love is a, a standalone bereavement center in New York that takes care of, um, at no cost, uh, children and, and families that have lost loved ones and uh, gives them support services, has support groups and so that they can be with like-minded children because a lot of times you think when you're in the middle of trauma that you're the only one in the world who's going through this. And what you discover very quickly is that really there are other people out there who are just like you. 
Um, are these charities uh, locally based or are they kind of nationally uh, national in scope? Um, my, my Good Deed is national in scope and um, uh, Billy Esposito a Caring Hand is local. Edie, how, if someone, you know, after listening to the program today or certainly ongoing, wants to volunteer or donate to the Canna Fitzgerald Relief Fund, how do they go about doing that? You can go to, www, you can go to www.cantorelief.org and you can call 212-829-4770 and we will um, happily take your donations. And if you want to follow us on social media, um, the website will tell you how to do that as well. We, we are, Canna Relief uh, is on Twitter and Facebook, and, and Unbroken Bond is on Twitter and Facebook, and uh, we are happy to have support uh, of the general public because with everything that Canna Fitzgerald does and the Canna Fitzgerald Relief Fund does, we could do so much more if people started realizing that, you know, the Canna Fitzgerald Relief Fund does great work and they can support it as well. So with all that said, Edie, what's next for you? Where, do you? where do you see yourself and your fund and all of the charitable events in the next five years? I mean, you know, obviously this can grow, you know, to monumental, you know, means. But what, what do you see for yourself personally in the next five years? Where do you want uh, to be? I, I see myself still running this fund. Um, until I retire, because I can't really imagine any other job as gratifying as this one, and uh, for me, as important. And um, and I see the fund, you know, taking the lessons. You know, like I said, we took the lessons we learned from 9-11 and we applied them to Sandy in Oklahoma. Now we can take the lessons we learned from 9-11, Sandy in Oklahoma, and apply them going forward. I'd like to sit here and say that, you know, there's not going to be trauma and tragedy going forward. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, that's, you know, something that we can expect as we go forward. And so I want the Canna Fitzgerald Relief Fund to be prepared to be able to respond as nimbly as we had in the past and as forthright and directly, because 100% of every dollar that comes to us goes out the door in direct financial aid. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, so, Edie, listen, thank you so much for being here with us today. I applaud your um, your activities, and the fund is, is quite extraordinary. Thanks again, and hopefully you'll come back and talk to us soon. Thank you so much for having me. It, it would be my pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you. You as well. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and thank you once again to Edie Lutnick. She was terrific, and the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund is a major organization here in New York and on a national level, so please, if you feel so obliged to want to donate, please do so. You know, the primary impact on the real estate market was the destruction of a significant portion of Manhattan's most competitively priced office space. It didn't necessarily affect the residential market as much, but it was mostly on the competitive uh, commercial space, office building space, etc. The attack damaged or destroyed 29 million square feet of office space, 8% of all Manhattan office space, 14% of Manhattan's Class A space, and 30% of all lower Manhattan commercial space. The attack also destroyed a half million retail uh, square feet, including the whole underground mall at the Trade Center. So, you know, the aftermath of that uh, terrorist attack was significant in that it took years to build that back. So I wanted to ask you guys, you know, my panel, first of all, I'm sorry, we're talking to Deborah Hoffman today, Rachel Altschuler, Niall Lundgren, and Ivy Ray, uh, my regular panelists. So what are your thoughts based on what we just heard from uh, Edie uh, about the relief fund and also maybe some of your memories from the actual day if you were involved or had family members involved? Or just read stories, you know, later through the years. Well, staying on the topic of real estate, um, something that I didn't mention earlier that happened, which is very interesting, is two weeks later, the Corcoran Group, which is a very large real estate company here in New York, had their annual sales meeting for all the salespeople in the company. And Barbara Corcoran got up there and she said, folks, we're all in mourning. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll tell you what I did do. I called all the developers I knew and all the real estate people in Northridge, California, because 10 years earlier, if all of us remember, there was that huge earthquake. And she asked, what happened to the real estate market uh, right after that earthquake? And they all said to her, immediately, the market went into the toilet for six months. So after six months, things started coming back because we're still Southern California. So Barbara Corcoran turned to all of us and said, you know, we're still Manhattan. We are still the center of the country. We're the center of finance. We're the center of everything. So I want you all to take six months off, go on vacation. I'm ordering you to go on vacation because in six months, this market's going to be rocking and rolling. Do your Mm -hmm. morning and go on vacation. And I think we all remember in four months, the market was more than back. The market was more than back. I remember I had just gotten into real estate, so I hadn't ridden the wave of up markets, down markets, flat markets, you know, crazy markets. But I do remember going into that event that the market was pretty strong, pretty stable, uh, and pretty consistent. And then, of course, that happened. And not only did the downtown market slow a bit, I think most of the Manhattan market slowed a bit. And it lasted for about three or four months. I remember I had just purchased, personally, I had just purchased an apartment um, 
a condominium on Central Park West, and I was about to close the week of 9-11. And, of course, just like anybody else, I thought, well, okay, so this event just happened. My broker calls me two days later and say the closing is still scheduled for the 14th, so three days later. And all I can think about was how could I possibly spend $600,000 on an apartment when the world is collapsing and people need money? This is just crazy. So she made me understand that, well, you can't just walk away from this because you're going to lose your money. You've got to close on this apartment, deal with it after the fact. And she was right. So I show up at the closing. I close. It was probably you know, <laughs> one of the least significant purchases of my, t- my life at the time. And it was m- one of the most significant ones you know, dollar-wise. But you know, it didn't make any emotional sense to me. I was just kind of dejected and, and, and unplugged. And I thought, well, just get through the motions and do it. And so I, I closed on the apartment and just kind of you know, sat there for a couple of months thinking, okay, so what am I doing with this? <laughs> I hadn't even moved in. I was still living somewhere else. Anyway, you know, bottom line is the market then about four or five months later, as Deborah just said, kind of just took off again. And I think, you know, when I tell you a little bit about my story later, you know, I think people just realized this is my town. Don't screw around. I'm not going to leave this town. And you know what? You can do what you want, but this is where I need to be. And so this is what I'm going to do. And I didn't leave. Lots of people didn't leave. But I do remember many people fled. Many people sold. Many people ran out to the Hamptons, up to Westchester, out to Jersey. They just didn't want to be in the center of this metropolis should this happen again immediately or somewhere down the road. And it was a very big exodus. And I think that's why the market sort of rallied a little bit initially because people sold and ran. And then people bought and we continued. Any um, any personal stories of, of, of either of any of you knowing people who were involved in this particular event on September 11th in 2001? I mean, I personally lost 26 friends and acquaintances, mm. business wow. associates, some friends. So it was a big, big event in my life. But, you know, anybody else have any personal you know, stories about losing people or people survived even better? I don't, I didn't actually know anyone uh, first degree. I knew second and third degree. Um, I was actually on 18th and 5th, uh, a year before I started in real estate, actually. I was in advertising, and we had a 9 a.m. meeting, and I remember taking the express bus from Queens for the first time, and it was just horrible traffic. Nobody knew what was going on, so I was late for my meeting. I show up. Everyone's in the partner's office with binoculars watching this go down, and then there was just a mass exodus, everyone racing out of the office, and I didn't know what to do. I could walk home to Queens, and we're talking Kew Gardens, Queens. We're not talking like Astoria, Queens. So it was definitely a, a journey. A very long walk, um, yeah. And I didn't know if it was safe to leave. I didn't know if it was safe to stay. And I just remember that feeling of not being able to make a phone call. Um, nobody was in the office with me. And I ended up just walking home, and it took me hours and hours. Um, it changed my life. Lost my job. Everyone lost their job in advertising after that day. For the most part, and um, and then I went into real estate. So I think my life actually it's very significant for me. Yeah, I had a similar situation. You know, I was in corporate America at the time, still selling technology, and you know, the corporate spending world kind of froze because no one, especially downtown, and my office was downtown, which you'll hear about a little later. But you know, no one really was comfortable enough to spend 
corporate dollars or any dollars on technology or anything at the time immediately following the uh, the event because no one knew what the world was was going to come down to. I mean, we just were all running scared. So we, you know, I sat there for about three months saying, I can't make a sale. You know, no one is buying anything. We were not allowed to go downtown in our office for about um, four or five weeks because of the cleanup. So we were all working from home. In those days, working from home was not really as, you know, uh, popular as it is today. So we were trying our best, but no one was buying anything. And so I did the same thing, Rachel. I kind of sat there and by March of the following year, I guess that was 2002, I said, you know what? I think it's time for a change. I think it's time Mm -hmm. to move on and make a career decision. And I left a very, very high paying job. And I went into real estate, you know, my first love or my second love or my always love. And, you know, I say that that event, you know, had some, you know, damaging aspects of, of, you know, my world, but it also provided, you know, some good stuff and a career change that really made sense for me. And, you know, I've never looked back. So if it wasn't for 9-11, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today talking about my real estate career. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. What else? Anybody lose any, any, you know, friends, family members, um, colleagues? Yeah, I lived up um, in Bedford at the time. And so that's about an hour and a half out of Manhattan. And we had a huge community. I wasn't in real estate. I was the mother of a kindergartner and in a big community where a lot of our neighbors, friends, people that I was teaching, people that I was familiar with closely. And then, of course, you know, out by second, third, fourth degree, a good portion of the community that lives in Katona and Bedford and Bedford Hills all committed to the city. And a good portion of them worked in those in those towers and in the surrounding buildings. So it was wild. I'm sure we all have that moment of whenever it was that we discovered what was occurring. And if you found out early, then you had the moment of um, the realization of what had occurred just after. And then there's like that hush where you're you're sitting and waiting for me trying to get to my son, wondering where my husband of the time was, wondering just all of these things. And then as the hours pass, you just begin to have find your way to people and you learn all of the people that are missing. And then over the, the next days, you learn all of the people whose news has been revealed. And I mean, it was just um, so wild, you know, intimately into community, into world, into really the world as to what had gone on. And um, I did have a lot of personal loss. And there's something, there's something I feel very guarded about speaking about the people I knew or my own pain and suffering at the time because it was so huge for so many. Before I be quiet, I want to salute Edie. I'm blown away at who you had on, Vince. Yeah. And if she's listening, I want to salute the work that you've done, you and your brother, and you will hear from me. Yeah, what she's, a she's brave, quite a remarkable. extraordinary woman. She's remarkable. Yeah. And quite frankly, you know, Howard also, who many of you have seen on many talk shows, you know, since 9-11, is, uh, he's very committed to not only Ken oh. Fitzgerald, obviously he's grown the company again, but to the really fun. And we, we needed him too, but he was away in Europe for um, uh, this week or whatever, so he wasn't able to join us. But the two of them have, you know, 
made a difference. And, and in my world, you know, if you can make a difference and touch one person or mm, you know, mm. several people, that, that's, that makes it for me. You know, quickly before we go to break, you know, you mentioned, Ivy, you know, two words, realization and mood. And so to all of you, you know, we're, we're all different ages. And, but, and so we, some have personal experiences with 9-11. Some are kids in school, some are whatever. But for all of you, when you realized at that moment what happened, what was the mood immediately around you or where you were? What happened? I mean, the, the, the towers were attacked and now they're falling down. Tell me quickly about, you know, what you thought at that moment. So I was, I was, yo- I was younger. I was younger. Um, I was in high school and I was walking through the, through the hallways between classes. And, you know, I saw a gathering of people in the dean's office and I popped in and everyone was looking at this 12-inch screen. And, you know, in 2001, it's crazy to see how far technology has come, but it was a very small screen, and everyone was crowding around it looking up. And and we all saw the second plane hit live. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, Ivy said that there was like a hush, and, you know, I've never seen anything like that. And it just sent chills through my spine, and everyone for about a minute in in that office, no one said anything. We were just staring at, and it was like complete and utter shock and grief about what had just happened. And um, I'll never forget that, for, you know, ever, ever. I mean, I didn't have a, a direct view of it. I'm from Connecticut, uh, so I had friends who were immediately panicking because they had family or parents who worked in, in Manhattan, and it was a, a little bit chaotic, but it was just utter shock and disbelief. And, you know, it was, you had to kind of pause and just really think about what was happening at the time. And it was, I don't know, something I'll never forget. It was just incredible. I mean, I think the word life-changing, at least in my life, you know, I was um, younger also when that happened. But I think, you know, the the words life-changing really meant something to me after that event because – I don't think any anything. I mean, we've had tragedy, of course, and we have personal things in our lives and whatever. But you know, life changing events for me, I think, started you know with that because for me, it was just so big and so huge, and so um, you know, uh, affecting personal life, work life. I mean, relationships, losing people. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So, you know, we can look at the words life changing and really kind of reflect on what that all means. Uh, we have to take a break, though, and I want to come back and just uh, get a couple more comments on realization and mood because I think it's important. Again, we're all different ages and we're all different. We were all in different you know, professions. So everybody has a personal story, and I think it's worth sharing with our listeners. So don't go away. We'll be right back. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. Everybody, we're back, and we're talking to the panel about realization and mood at the moment that we realize that something happened and something big happened. Um, Rachel, when, when you realized that this big event just took place, regardless of where you were or what you were doing at the moment, what was the first thing that went through your mind and, and why? Um, grateful. And okay. I, I just felt like that day, I mean, there were hordes, masses of people walking in the same direction, just thousands, and everyone just kind of was in this daze, walking very slow, um, looking at their neighbor, it's eye contact, just, it was such a different city, and it lasted for a few weeks, I think even on the subways, people were, there was no pushing, there was like, oh, after you, oh, please, after you, it was such it, isn't that interesting right? time, yeah. yeah, isn't that right? I wanted to mention the same thing, Rachel. You're so right. I, uh, you know, out of everything, they're always kind of as metaphorical from the buildings collapsing. There's a collapse of distance between people and nations, and when something of this magnitude occurs, and I agree. I'm from New York. And what was going on in New York City was extraordinary following 9-11. There was Mm -hmm. no separation between people anymore. Absolute strangers. You'd be standing at the corner waiting, and you'd have someone just kind of touch you to, you know, move you across the street. And people were looking into each other's eyes, and everybody, that oneness. And I think it, you know, kind of stretched all over the place, but it was palpable, Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think, think that's it why changed it's things forever. To remember it, every year, so that at least, at the very least, once a year, if not more, mm-hmm. two, three times a year, everyone is brought back down to earth and grounded to that day, to that feeling. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Grounded is a is a good way to put it too, because I agree with that totally. All right, so, you know, everybody's asked me through the years because I kind of lived through this whole event, and I wrote something a while ago, and I wanted to read it today on the air because I think it, it, it makes sense, and it kind of ties up a lot of what we've been talking about. So, on the most beautiful September morning, as I mentioned earlier, I was happy. I was just back from a wonderful and peaceful summer in East Hampton, which is in New York City, uh, in New York on Long Island. I was tanned. I felt good. I felt like I was on top of the world because I live in the greatest city in the world. I had a great job making a very comfortable living. I have great and the most fantastic friends. I love and adore and I'm very close to my family. I had it all. I live in America, the United States, and I'm immune to the world unrest and conflict. That other stuff happens elsewhere. So I thought, well, I arrived at my office at 825 on that Tuesday morning, fresh off the subway system from the Upper West Side where I live, about 20-minute train ride to downtown. I got to my desk and was drinking coffee and preparing for several important meetings throughout the day as I was New York chief of sales and I ran the New York office. I was drinking coffee and thinking when suddenly I glanced out my floor-to-ceiling windows. I was just thinking. I had a direct view of both towers at the World Trade Center. My office was on the 55th floor of a building a couple blocks away on Exchange Place. All of a sudden, I rocked in my chair in a thunderous jolt. 
I dropped my coffee cup. I saw the most unbelievable burst of fire and flames in front of me, almost like a movie. So perfect and big and red and orange and yellow and real. Real. I was stunned. I saw paper and furniture and people being blown out of this picture. Many people flying in the air. I had no idea what happened. The first plane entered from the west side of Tower 1. My view was east. You can only just imagine. While we collected our thoughts, I got up to see who else was in the office so early. I didn't have to go far because they were all behind me in my office because they heard the impact and came running in because I had the best view and they needed to see what was happening. Many of us were just looking when less than 15 minutes later we were startled by a very loud sounding machine. We looked out the other window in my office which looked directly at the Hudson River and we saw a very large plane at my window height racing down the river aiming for Tower 2. On impact, my office rocked and I fell backwards into the chair I was sitting in prior. The impact was so loud and shocking that we all knew this is more than an accident. I evacuated the office and we headed out, out of the building and onto the street. This is where my life changed. I live in America where I am safe and secure. This stuff happens everywhere else but here. But this day, this stuff was happening in my city and in my America. I cannot ever describe properly what took place. For me, over the next five hours, I was in war. I was running for my life. I was covered in ash. I tripped and I fell. I ran for my life. I helped everyone around me as everyone else was doing. We were under a plume of smoke and not able to see much. We were directed east towards the FDR highway because the, Hudson, the Henry Hudson Parkway on the west side was under siege. We had to walk to our homes. I lived at the time on Central Park West and 62nd Street, and I just had to get there. On that journey, we had to scale two fences, run through riverbanks, as I watched many people give up and jump into the East River because they just couldn't keep up. I watched a pregnant woman fall to the ground and yell, take me, take me, I can't do this anymore. The journey was excruciating. Then the first building fell and the sound was deafening. Boulders and steel were tripping us at every turn. I fell over a piece of metal. The fighter, fighter pilot planes above the plume were so loud it sounded like we were being attacked more. Remember, on the ground, we had no idea what was happening. Rumor on the street was that World War III had just begun. But no one knew why, but we knew that America was under attack. We lost cell phone access and communications were lost for many hours until I got home five hours later and put on the television. That's when I realized what happened. You can just imagine for five hours what you're thinking. Then the second building fell and something hit me in the back. I still don't know what it was, but someone screamed. I just focused on survival. I was covered in ash from head to toe when I arrived back at my building. My doorman cried as I walked in because they knew I worked downtown. Not sure where. I cried too. I got to my apartment where I remained for seven straight days before I had the strength or the energy or the courage to leave. I was locked in and I watched the wall-to-wall coverage. Downtown was closed off for weeks, so I couldn't get to work anyway. The day finally ended, and I had no understanding as to what had happened to my very peaceful and prosperous world. Why did life have to change? Why did so many, many Americans have to die? What was happening? Where was life heading? I didn't know. I do know that as I watched that fire burn at Ground Zero for months to come, I knew that I was a New Yorker, I was an American, and fuck those terrorists. They would never run me out of the town that I love and call home. 
13 years later, I'm still here and want to be. I'm concerned with this ISIS threat, but as I decided 13 years ago, I'm a New Yorker and no one will make me leave. It's my fate, if it's my fate to perish in a terrorist attack, so be it. I'm here in New York, which is my home. So that's my story. And it's pretty, you know, significant. I just read something that Ivy wrote, actually, I think hours after the 9-11 event. She wants to read it for us now. Vince, thank you. You're ah. welcome. Uh, so I, before I read, it was um, everyone remen- remembers. Oh, two minutes. I just got a peace sign from Vince. I'm just going to read. <laughs> this is what I wrote to make, to move on. I knew that I'd have to write, and, I, and so this is what came out of me. On the day when the sun went down in the morning, when the dust from the cumulative rage, fear, confusion, and utter disarmament slowly finds its resting place, what we'll find when we find the courage to just be still amidst this massive motion is deep, red blood fresh, all-encompassing, unbearable, sad. If you're brave enough to take root here, let it become you. Stare it down for the beast that it all is. You'll see hints of light around its edges. They will beckon you. Follow. Love gets dim and quiet, but never ever dies. I, for one, will be here. From now on, I will be still, awake, and strong enough. I will listen, I will wait, and I will pray for the golden opportunity of looking right into your eyes. I will open my arms wide and hold you for as long as it takes, for all those whose light was put out way before its time, for all those who now have that gaping hole where their lives used to be, for all of us, our children, and our new world. I vow for as long as I live to never, ever not love again. To never, ever not love again. All right, everybody, we're about to end, and I just wanted to remind you all again, if you want to donate to the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund, you can do so by calling 212-829-4770. That's 212-829-4770. 4770. Once again, thanks to Edie Lutnick. Thanks to my panel of superstars. Next week, Jim Greikar, who is president of Holstead Property, um, will be here to talk about the status of real estate. We're back to a real estate show next week. He takes an active role in the business direction of each of the offices that they have open these days. He's a charismatic spirit with an engaging manner and quick wit. He is often called upon as an industry expert by news organizations such as the New York Times, CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and the AP. He's a frequent lecturer on a wide range of critical topics impacting the real estate industry, and we're happy to have him here. It'll be a fascinating interview. Until next time, thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being with you next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Time, live on the Variety Channel here on the Voice America Network. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. Have a great week, everybody. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in this week. 
Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back. 